Part two of Olalla. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Olalla by Robert Louis Stevenson. Part two. Meanwhile, I gained rapidly in health. The residencia stood on the crown of a stony plateau. On every side, the mountains hemmed it about. Only from the roof, where was a bartizan, there might be seen between two peaks a small segment of plain, blue with extreme distance. The air in these altitudes moved freely and largely. Great clouds congregated there, and were broken up by the wind and left in tatters on the hilltops. A hoarse and yet faint rumbling of torrents rose from all round, and one could there study all the ruder and more ancient characters of nature in something of their pristine force. I delighted from the first in the vigorous scenery and changeful weather, nor less in the antique and dilapidated mansion where I dwelt. This was a large oblong, flanked at two opposite corners by bastion-like projections, one of which commanded the door, while both were loopholed for musketry. The lower story was, besides, naked of windows, so that the building, if garrisoned, could not be carried without artillery. It enclosed an open court, planted with pomegranate trees. From this a broad flight of marble stairs ascended to an open gallery, running all round, and resting, towards the court, on slender pillars. Thence, again, several enclosed stairs led to the upper stories of the house, which were thus broken up into distinct divisions. The windows, both within and without, were closely shuttered. Some of the stonework in the upper parts had fallen. The roof in one place had been wrecked in one of the flurries of wind which were common in these mountains. And the whole house, in the strong, beating sunlight, and standing out above a grove of stunted cork-trees, thickly laden and discoloured with dust, looked like the sleeping palace of the legend. The court, in particular, seemed the very home of slumber. A hoarse cooing of doves haunted about the eaves, the winds were excluded, but when they blew outside, the mountain dust fell here as thick as rain, and veiled the red bloom of the pomegranates. Shuttered windows and the closed doors of numerous cellars, and the vacant arches of the gallery, enclosed it, and all day long the sun made broken profiles on the four sides, and paraded the shadow of the pillars on the gallery floor. At the ground level there was, however, a certain pillared recess, which bore the marks of human habitation. Though it was open in front upon the court, it was yet provided with a chimney, where a wood-fire would be always prettily blazing, and the tile-floor was littered with the skins of animals. It was in this place that I first saw my hostess. She had drawn one of the skins forward, and sat in the sun, leaning against a pillar. It was her dress that struck me first of all, for it was rich and brightly coloured, and shone out in that dusty courtyard with something of the same relief as the flowers of the pomegranates. At a second look, it was her beauty of person that took hold of me. As she sat back, watching me, I thought, though with invisible eyes, and wearing at the same time an expression of almost imbecile good-humour and contentment, she showed a perfectness of feature, and a quiet nobility of attitude that were beyond a statue's. I took off my hat to her in passing, and her face puckered with suspicion as swiftly and lightly as a pool ruffles in the breeze, but she paid no heed to my courtesy. I went forth on my customary walk a trifle daunted, her idol-like impassivity haunting me. And when I returned, although she was still in much the same posture, I was half surprised to see that she had moved as far as the next pillar, following the sunshine. This time, however, she addressed me with some trivial salutation, 
civilly enough conceived, and uttered in the same deep-chested and yet indistinct and lisping tones that had already baffled the utmost niceness of my hearing from her son. I answered rather at a venture, for not only did I fail to take her meaning with precision, but the sudden disclosure of her eyes disturbed me. They were unusually large, the iris golden like Felipe's, but the pupil at that moment so distended that they seemed almost black, and what affected me was not so much their size—what was perhaps its consequence—the singular insignificance of their regard. A look more blankly stupid I have never met. My eyes dropped before it even as I spoke, and I went on my way upstairs to my own room, at once baffled and embarrassed. Yet when I came there and saw the face of the portrait, I was again reminded of the miracle of family descent. My hostess was, indeed, both older and fuller in person, her eyes were of a different colour. Her face, besides, was not only free from the ill significance that offended and attracted me in the painting, it was devoid of either good or bad, a moral blank expressing literally naught. And yet there was a likeness, not so much speaking as imminent, not so much in any particular feature as upon the whole. It should seem, I thought, as if when the master set his signature to that grave canvas, he had not only caught the image of one smiling and false-eyed woman, but stamped the essential quality of a race. From that day forth, whether I came or went, I was sure to find the signora seated in the sun against a pillar, or stretched on a rug before the fire. Only at times she would shift her station to the top round of the stone staircase, where she lay with the same nonchalance right across my path. In all these days I never knew her to display the least spark of energy beyond what she expended in brushing and re-brushing her copious copper-coloured hair, or in lisping out, in the rich and broken hoarseness of her voice, her customary idle salutations to myself. These, I think, were her two chief pleasures beyond that of mere quiescence. She seemed always proud of her remarks, as though they had been witticisms, and indeed though they were empty enough, like the conversation of many respectable persons, and turned on a very narrow range of subjects, they were never meaningless or incoherent. Nay, they had a certain beauty of their own, breathing, as they did, of her entire contentment. Now she would speak of the warmth, in which, like her son, she greatly delighted, now of the flowers of the pomegranate trees, and now of the white doves and long-winged swallows that fanned the air of the court. The birds excited her, as they raked the eaves in their swift flight, or skimmed sidelong past her with a rush of wind, she would sometimes stir, and sit up a little, and seem to waken from her doze of satisfaction. But for the rest of her days she lay luxuriously folded on herself, and sunk in sloth and pleasure. Her invincible content at first annoyed me. But I came gradually to find repose in the spectacle, until at last it grew to be my habit to sit down beside her four times in the day, both coming and going, and to talk with her sleepily, I scarce knew of what. I had come to like her dull, almost animal neighbourhood. Her beauty and her stupidity soothed and amused me. I began to find a kind of transcendental good sense in her remarks, and her unfathomable good nature moved me to admiration and envy. The liking was returned, she enjoyed my presence half unconsciously, as a man in deep meditation may enjoy the babbling of a brook. I can scarce say she brightened when I came, for satisfaction was written on her face eternally, as on some foolish statues. But I was made conscious of her pleasure by some more intimate communication than the sight. 
and one day, as I sat within reach of her on the marble step, she suddenly shot forth one of her hands, and patted mine. The thing was done, and she was back in her accustomed attitude, before my mind had received intelligence of the caress, and when I turned to look her in the face, I could perceive no answerable sentiment. It was plain she attached no moment to the act, and I blamed myself for my own more uneasy consciousness. The sight, and, if I may so call it, the acquaintance of the mother, confirmed the view I had already taken of the son. The family blood had been impoverished, perhaps by long inbreeding, which I knew to be a common error among the proud and the exclusive. No decline, indeed, was to be traced in the body, which had been handed down unimpaired in shapeliness and strength, and the faces of to-day were struck as sharply from the mint as the face of two centuries ago that smiled upon me from the portrait. But the intelligence, that more precious heirloom, was degenerate, the treasure of ancestral memory ran low, and it had required the potent plebeian crossing of a muleteer or mountain contrabandista to raise what approached hebetude in the mother into the active oddity of the son. Yet of the two it was the mother I preferred. Of Felipe, vengeful and placable, full of starts and shyings, inconstant as a hare, I could even conceive as a creature possibly noxious. Of the mother I had no thoughts but those of kindness. And indeed, as spectators are apt ignorantly to take sides, I grew something of a partisan in the enmity which I perceived to smoulder between them. True, it seemed mostly on the mother's part. She would sometimes draw in her breath as he came near, and the pupils of her vacant eyes would contract as if with horror or fear. Her emotions, such as they were, were much upon the surface and readily shared, and this latent repulsion occupied my mind, and kept me wondering on what grounds it rested, and whether the sun was certainly in fault. I had been about ten days in the residencia, when there sprang up a high and harsh wind, carrying clouds of dust. It came out of malarious lowlands, and over several snowy sierras. The nerves of those on whom it blew were strung, and jangled. Their eyes smarted with the dust, their legs ached under the burden of their body, and the touch of one hand upon another grew to be odious. The wind, besides, came down the gullies of the hills, and stormed about the house with a great hollow buzzing and whistling that was wearisome to the ear, and dismally depressing to the mind. It did not so much blow in gusts, as with the steady sweep of a waterfall, so that there was no remission of discomfort while it blew. But higher upon the mountain, it was probably of a more variable strength, with accesses of fury, for there came down at times a far-off wailing, infinitely grievous to hear, and at times, on one of the high shelves or terraces, there would start up, and then disperse, a tower of dust, like the smoke of an explosion. I no sooner awoke in bed than I was conscious of the nervous tension and depression of the weather, and the effect grew stronger as the day proceeded. It was in vain that I resisted, in vain that I set forth upon my customary morning's walk. The irrational, unchanging fury of the storm had soon beat down my strength, and wrecked my temper, and I returned to the residencia, glowing with dry heat, and foul and gritty with dust. The court had a forlorn appearance. Now and then a glimmer of sun fled over it, now and then the wind swooped down upon the pomegranates, and scattered the blossoms, and set the window-shutters clapping upon the wall. In the recess the signora was pacing to and fro, with a flushed countenance and bright eyes. I thought, too, she was speaking to herself, like one in anger. But when I addressed her with my customary salutation, she only replied by a sharp gesture, and continued her walk. 
The weather had distempered even this impassive creature, and as I went on upstairs I was the less ashamed of my own discomposure. All day the wind continued, and I sat in my room and made a feint of reading, or walked up and down, and listened to the riot overhead. Night fell, and I had not so much as a candle. I began to long for some society, and stole down to the court. It was now plunged in the blue of the first darkness, but the recess was redly lighted by the fire. The wood had been piled high, and was crowned by a shock of flames, which the draught of the chimney brandished to and fro. In this strong and shaken brightness the Signora continued pacing from wall to wall, with disconnected gestures, clasping her hands, stretching forth her arms, throwing back her head as an appeal to heaven. In these disordered movements the beauty and grace of the woman showed more clearly, but there was a light in her eye that struck on me unpleasantly, and when I had looked on a while in silence and seemingly unobserved, I turned tail as I had come, and groped my way back again to my own chamber. By the time Felipe brought my supper and lights, my nerve was utterly gone, and had the lad been such as I was used to seeing him, I should have kept him, even by force had that been necessary, to take off the edge from my distasteful solitude. But on Felipe also the wind had exercised its influence. He had been feverish all day. Now that the night had come, he was fallen into a low and tremulous humour that reacted on my own. The sight of his scared face, his starts and pallors and sudden hearkenings, unstrung me, and when he dropped and broke a dish, I fairly leapt out of my seat. "'I think we are all mad to-day,' said I, affecting to laugh. "'It is the black wind,' he replied dolefully. "'You feel as if you must do something, and you don't know what it is.' I noted the aptness of the description. But, indeed, Felipe had sometimes a strange felicity in rendering into words the sensations of the body. "'And your mother, too,' said I, "'she seems to feel this weather much. Do you not fear she may be unwell?' He stared at me a little, and then said, "'No,' almost defiantly, and the next moment, carrying his hand to his brow, cried out lamentably on the wind and the noise that made his head go round like a mill-wheel. "'Who can be well?' he cried and indeed I could only echo his question, for I was disturbed enough myself. I went to bed early, wearied with day-long restlessness, but the poisonous nature of the wind, and its ungodly and unintermittent uproar, would not suffer me to sleep. I lay there and tossed, my nerves and senses on the stretch. At times I would doze, dream horribly, and wake again, and these snatches of oblivion confused me as to time but it must have been late on in the night, when I was suddenly startled by an outbreak of pitiable and hateful cries. I leapt from my bed, supposing I had dreamed, but the cries still continued to fill the house—cries of pain, I thought, but certainly of rage also, and so savage and discordant that they shocked the heart. It was no illusion—some living thing, some lunatic or wild animal, was being foully tortured. The thought of Felipe and the squirrel flashed into my mind, and I ran to the door but it had been locked from the outside, and I might shake it as I pleased. I was a fast prisoner. Still the cries continued. Now they would dwindle down into a moaning that seemed to be articulate, and at these times I made sure they must be human, and again they would break forth and fill the house with ravings worthy of hell. I stood at the door and gave ear to them, till at last they died away. Long after that I still lingered and still continued to hear them mingle in fancy with the storming of the wind. And when at last I crept to my bed, it was with a deadly sickness, and a blackness of horror on my heart. It was little wonder if I slept no more.
Why had I been locked in? What had passed? Who was the author of these indescribable and shocking cries? A human being? It was inconceivable. A beast? The cries were scarce quite bestial. And what animal, short of a lion or tiger, could thus shake the solid walls of the residencia? And while I was thus turning over the elements of the mystery, it came into my mind that I had not yet set eyes upon the daughter of the house. What was more probable than that the daughter of the signora, and the sister of Felipe, should be herself insane? Or what more likely than that these ignorant and half-witted people should seek to manage an afflicted kinswoman by violence? Here was a solution. And yet, when I called to mind the cries, which I never did without a shuddering chill, it seemed altogether insufficient. Not even cruelty could wring such cries from madness. But of one thing I was sure. I could not live in a house where such a thing was half conceivable, and not probe the matter home, and if necessary, interfere. The next day came, the wind had blown itself out, and there was nothing to remind me of the business of the night. Felipe came to my bedside with obvious cheerfulness. As I passed through the court, the signora was sunning herself with her accustomed immobility, and when I issued from the gateway, I found the whole face of nature austerely smiling, the heavens of a cold blue, and sown with great cloud islands, and the mountain sides mapped forth into provinces of light and shadow. A short walk restored me to myself, and renewed within me the resolve to plumb this mystery. And when, from the vantage of my knoll, I had seen Felipe pass forth to his labours in the garden, I returned at once to the residencia to put my design in practice. The signora appeared plunged in slumber. I stood a while and marked her, but she did not stir. Even if my design were indiscreet, I had little to fear from such a guardian. And turning away, I mounted to the gallery and began my exploration of the house. All morning I went from one door to another, and entered spacious and faded chambers, some rudely shuttered, some receiving their full charge of daylight, all empty and unhomely. It was a rich house, on which time had breathed his tarnish, and dust had scattered disillusion. The spider swung there, the bloated tarantula scampered on the cornices, ants had their crowded highways on the floors of halls of audience, the big and foul fly that lives on carrion, and is often the messenger of death, had set up his nest in the rotten woodwork, and buzzed heavily about the rooms. Here and there a stool or two, a couch, a bed, or a great carved chair remained behind, like islets on the bare floors, to testify of man's bygone habitation, and everywhere the walls were set with the portraits of the dead. I could judge by these decaying effigies, in the house of what a great and what a handsome race I was then wandering. Many of the men wore orders on their breasts, and had the port of noble offices. The women were all richly attired, the canvases most of them by famous hands. But it was not so much these evidences of greatness that took hold upon my mind, even contrasted as they were, with the present depopulation and decay of that great house. It was rather the parable of family life that I read in this succession of fair faces and shapely bodies. Never before had I so realized the miracle of the continued race, the creation and recreation, the weaving and changing and handing down of fleshly elements. That a child should be born of its mother, that it should grow and clothe itself, we know not how, with humanity, and put on inherited looks, and turn its head with the manner of one ascendant, and offer its hand with the gesture of another, are wonders dulled for us by repetition. 
but in the singular unity of look, in the common features and common bearing, of all these painted generations on the walls of the residencia, the miracle started out and looked me in the face. And an ancient mirror falling opportunely in my way, I stood and read my own features a long while, tracing out on either hand the filaments of descent, and the bonds that knit me with my family. At last, in the course of these investigations, I opened the door of a chamber that bore the marks of habitation. It was of large proportions, and faced to the north, where the mountains were most wildly figured. The embers of a fire smouldered and smoked upon the hearth, to which a chair had been drawn close. And yet the aspect of the chamber was ascetic to the degree of sternness. The chair was uncushioned, the floor and walls were naked and beyond the books which lay here and there in some confusion, there was no instrument of either work or pleasure. The sight of books in the house of such a family exceedingly amazed me, and I began with a great hurry, and in a momentary fear of interruption, to go from one to another and hastily inspect their character. They were of all sorts, devotional, historical, and scientific, but mostly of a great age, and in the Latin tongue. Some I could see to bear the marks of constant study, Others had been torn across and tossed aside as if in petulance or disapproval. Lastly, as I cruised about that empty chamber, I espied some papers written upon with pencil on a table near the window. An unthinking curiosity led me to take one up. It bore a copy of verses, very roughly metred in the original Spanish, and which I may render somewhat thus. Pleasure approached with pain and shame, grief with a wreath of lilies came. Pleasure showed the lovely sun. Jesu, dear, how sweet it shone! Grief with her worn hand pointed on, Jesu, dear, to thee. Shame and confusion at once fell upon me, and laying down the paper, I beat an immediate retreat from the apartment. Neither Felipe nor his mother could have read the books, nor written these rough but feeling verses. It was plain I had stumbled with sacrilegious feet into the room of the daughter of the house. God knows my own heart most sharply punished me for my indiscretion. The thought that I had thus secretly pushed my way into the confidence of a girl so strangely situated, and the fear that she might somehow come to hear of it, oppressed me like guilt. I blamed myself besides for my suspicions of the night before, wondered that I ever should have attributed those shocking cries to one of whom I now conceived as of a saint, spectral of mien, wasted with maceration, bound up in the practices of a mechanical devotion, and dwelling in a great isolation of soul with her incongruous relatives. And as I leaned on the balustrade of the gallery, and looked down into the bright close of pomegranates, and at the gaily dressed and somnolent woman, who just then stretched herself and delicately licked her lips, as in the very sensuality of sloth, my mind swiftly compared the scene with the cold chamber looking northward on the mountains, where the daughter dwelt. That same afternoon, as I sat upon my knoll, I saw the padre enter the gates of the residencia. The revelation of the daughter's character had struck home to my fancy, and almost blotted out the horrors of the night before. But at sight of this worthy man the memory revived. I descended, then, from the knoll, and making a circuit among the woods, posted myself by the wayside to await his passage. As soon as he appeared I stepped forth and introduced myself as the lodger of the residencia. He had a very strong, honest countenance, on which it was easy to read the mingled emotions with which he regarded me, as a foreigner, a heretic, and yet one who had been wounded for the good cause. Of the family at the residencia he spoke with reserve, and yet with respect. I mentioned that I had not yet seen the daughter, whereupon he remarked that that was as it should be, and looked at me a little askance. 
Lastly, I plucked up the courage to refer to the cries that had disturbed me in the night. He heard me out in silence, and then stopped and partly turned about, as though to mark beyond doubt that he was dismissing me. "'Do you take tobacco powder?' said he, offering his snuff-box. And then, when I had refused, "'I am an old man,' he added, "'and I may be allowed to remind you that you are a guest.' "'I have, then, your authority,' I returned, firmly enough, although I flushed at the implied reproof, "'to let things take their course, and not to interfere.' He said, "'Yes,' and with a somewhat uneasy salute, turned and left me where I was. But he had done two things. He had set my conscience at rest, and he had awakened my delicacy. I made a great effort, once more dismissed the recollections of the night, and fell once more to brooding on my saintly poetess. At the same time, I could not quite forget that I had been locked in, and that night when Felipe brought me my supper, I attacked him warily on both points of interest. "'I never see your sister,' said I, casually. "'Oh, no,' said he. "'She is a good, good girl.' and his mind instantly veered to something else. "'Your sister is pious, I suppose?' I asked in the next pause. "'Oh!' he cried, joining his hands with extreme fervour. "'A saint! It is she that keeps me up!' "'You are fortunate,' said I. "'For the most of us, I am afraid, and myself among the number, are better at going down.' "'Senor,' said Felipe earnestly, "'I would not say that. You should not tempt your angel. If one goes down, where is he to stop?' "'Why, Felipe,' said I, "'I had no guess you were a preacher, and I may say a good one. But I suppose that is your sister's doing.' He nodded at me with round eyes. "'Well, then,' I continued, "'she has doubtless reproved you for your sin of cruelty.' Twelve times!' he cried, for this was the phrase by which the odd creature expressed the sense of frequency. "'And I told her you had done so. I remembered that,' he added proudly, and she was pleased. Then Felipe, said I, what were those cries that I heard last night? For surely they were cries of some creature in suffering. The wind, returned Felipe, looking in the fire. I took his hand in mine, at which, thinking it to be a caress, he smiled with a brightness of pleasure that came near disarming my resolve. But I trod the weakness down. The wind, I repeated, and yet I think it was this hand, holding it up, that had first locked me in. The lad shook visibly, but answered never a word. "'Well,' said I, "'I am a stranger and a guest. It is not my part either to meddle or to judge in your affairs. In these you shall take your sister's counsel, which I cannot doubt to be excellent. But in so far as concerns my own, I will be no man's prisoner, and I demand that key.' Half an hour later my door was suddenly thrown open, and the key tossed ringing on the floor. End of Part 2